On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, conspiracy theories, and urban legends, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. I reacted like someone who had been attacked, assaulted. They're most interested, it would seem, in all the things that make us particularly human. Like, I'm laying right here, my bed right there. I usually see, they call them the, the shadow people. I, I don't know what happened. You can remember everything now. I'll remember if it's the last thing I do. It can run in families, both believers and skeptics agree. These experiences with the extraterrestrial paranormal. On a beer run on a dark wooded road in the early 1980s, my dad used to tell a story of driving his pickup truck with his buddy Jarshaw when all of a sudden, bang, they hit something that sounded like solid metal but they hadn't seen anything at all. When they got out to look, there it was on the pavement, a metal sphere a little smaller than a soccer ball. As they got close, it shot straight up in the air, stopped in front of them, and then zipped into the woods and disappeared. It's a whopper, I know, but my mom even backs this one up. My mom, who has seen her own unexplained objects, a bright green light over the trees. She was at that party when the boys came back beerless, their faces drained to white, a dent on the front bumper of the truck. As a kid, perhaps you too would have found a story like this inspiring. I certainly did, and my friend Johnny and I kept lying out on blankets in the yard at night, clocking more and more unidentified flying objects that were making their way through the ever-opulent black. We liked them that way, unexplained. We liked the mystery. We wanted to believe. Now I think we needed to believe. In part one of our series, we were introduced to the personalities and philosophies of the most influential abductees and the intellectual frenemies who studied them. We'll be looking closer at their work today, but don't worry, I'll remind you who everyone is in what has come to feel like an alien abduction academic episode of Degrassi. There's horror writer Whitley Strieber, who was abducted in 1985 from his cabin and then wrote the best-selling Communion, all about recovering the memories of that frightful night. Then there's Bud Hopkins, who helped him recover those memories, the unlicensed hypnotherapist who viewed the aliens as emotionless beings hell-bent on completing some kind of hybrid breeding program. And of course, there's the renowned head of psychiatry at Harvard, John Mack, who, after being introduced to abductee stories by Bud Hopkins, risked his career to study abduction stories as a serious academic pursuit. 
And who could forget Dear Math Boy, John's scholarly frenemy, dreamy, turtlenecked astrophysicist Carl Sagan, who made it part of his skeptic's mission to combat the misinformation that he believed was not in fact coming from outer space, but rather from inner space. If you'll remember, psychologists largely agree that there is no pathological reason for these visions of abduction. Only a small percent of people are diagnosed with any kind of illness that could cause hallucinations. So what could possibly, or impossibly, be going on here? Beyond the hoaxes that we will be saving for another day, we can look at sociological explanations, the cultural fears and traditions that show up in our individual and collective consciousness. We can also look to a biological explanation, a sleep disorder that's widely believed by skeptics to be the best explanation for the paranormal. We'll need to explore more critically the repressed memory movement that would produce the template for abduction stories, as Betty and Barney Hill remembered with their hypnotherapist being taken aboard a ship and experimented on by humanoid creatures. And lastly, we'll discuss how our changing psychological, scientific, and spiritual beliefs didn't stop us from creating modern myths to make sense of the remaining mystery, both of the universe and of ourselves. You can remember everything now. What did these men look like? Did you see their faces? No. How were they dressed? Did they have on a uniform or ordinary clothes? I couldn't say. I don't know. I can't remember. I'm not supposed to remember. Your memory is sharp now. You needn't worry. You can remember everything. I'll remember if it's the last thing I do. In what are now referred to as the memory wars of the 1990s, there was a very public debate about how memory actually works and whether or not the onslaught of hypnotically recovered stories, satanic, extraterrestrial or not, were a reliable source of objective truth. This was not just a matter of psychological theory, but of genuine and immediate concern. Many people had been put through the public criminal trials of the satanic panic that we covered in our two-part series. Finally, by the 2000s, most psychologists and scientists formally agreed that our memories do not work like a computer or a filing cabinet where each event is preserved, recalled with accuracy, and then refiled to be remembered again with the same accuracy the next time. In actuality, every time you remember something, you're really remembering the last time you remembered it. Memory is far more like a long game of psychic telephone with yourself. It's a little freaky, I know. Consistently, it appears that around 25% of people can create false memories that are implanted by even slight suggestions. When it comes to the detailed stories of abductees, Whitley Strieber went a step further in his book Communion, 
floating the also Freudian idea that screen memories could be implanted by aliens. That is, memories of something benign superimposed over a memory of trauma. For Whitley, and for others who write about these types of memories, interactions with animals can be signs that your memory has been overwritten by an extraterrestrial intelligence. The whole thing has a sort of Twin Peaks, the owls are not what they seem vibe. In Communion, Whitley gives a great first example of a suspect memory, potentially a screen. He recalls being scared by Mr. Peanut as a child during a parade, though in the book he doesn't clarify in what form he appears. He knows for certain that he never encountered Mr. Peanut at a parade, so why on earth would he remember it? He provides another, less cute example. For years, he remembered being present during the University of Texas shooting spree in 1966, in which sniper Charles Whitman killed more than a dozen people. In speeches, he would tell of the boy on the bike, the bullet piercing his small body as he rode toward Whitley. But he would eventually learn that no such boy ever existed. Even his mom would tell him that he wasn't there. But still, he said he could smell the blood as strongly as he later remembered and then wrote about how he could smell the cardboard scent of the alien's skin. Whitley realized that memory was unreliable, but obviously his supernatural explanation was different from his contemporary Carl Sagan, who wrote The Demon-Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark, smack dab in the middle of the memory wars, in which he works to debunk screen memories and recovered memory hypnotherapy with a feeling of immediacy. He knew that there were many cases in which there are distressing events that happen that we don't remember because we were too young or because we actively worked not to think about it forever, or we even altered the memory over time to help us cope with a different form of abuse. But the act of remembering what you had previously absolutely no memory of or evidence for can be very dangerous territory. I personally remember in rich detail several experiences I realized two decades later never occurred or became vastly exaggerated through my rather flamboyant showman's personality. That doesn't mean this always happens with memory. It just means that it is a legit concern. Though she would remain a believer in alien abduction, Betty Hill would grow to adamantly oppose the use of hypnosis to treat experiencers, believing that her doctor, Dr. Simon, had indeed encouraged her fantasies beyond what she felt was right. And not to mention, decades before these memory wars, Sigmund Freud had already recanted his own theory, saying that the memories were not actual events, but fantasies about wanting a penis or wanting to have sex with your parents or whatever. By and large, most therapists did not and do not encourage the creation of false memories, and those that do, by and large, do not do it on purpose. 
Though he would never go as far as Betty Hill, experiencer Peter Faust would question his many sessions with John Mack as well. You'll remember Peter as the abductee who went with John on the Oprah Winfrey show and whose very explicit hypnotherapy session tape was played for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Peter had spent countless hours with his eyes closed, recalling painful things that seemed completely impossible, that were distressing, traumatically uncanny, but also incredibly beautiful, hopeful, loving, like nothing he had ever experienced on Earth. But regardless, he was still left with a nagging question, quote, did John's spiritual bent affect all of us, or did our experiences influence him? How much of my memories are real? Are my memories true, or are some of them true and other ones part of psychologically transferring a father figure onto John and trying to please him and stay the center of attention? Is that part of it? Or are my regressions, each one, part of my reality and part of my experience? Repressed memory hypnotherapy may very well explain the majority of these fantastical stories. However, there has got to be more to it than that, because it all had to start with at least a grain of truth. Something that got each of these people desperate enough to end up on that hypnotherapist's couch. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. And now, back to the show. So I'm laying there. I see dude, like I'm laying right here, my bed right there. I see dude like over here in this location, general location. He looking at me. He just watching. That I usually see, they call them the, the shadow people. I usually see them, you know, like they say you sleep. And you lay in there and like the person is just right above you, just kind of watching you. I don't really be scared. I ain't gonna lie, I be scared sometimes. Sometimes I do. Statistically speaking, I know that some of you listening right now have been stricken before in the middle of the night, maybe more than once, by some kind of inhuman humanoid standing near your bed. Unable to move, you might have been psychically pinned in place, had trouble taking full breaths, felt a weight on your chest, and then maybe more of them came, more shadow than flesh, three, four, five looking down at you. Maybe you tried with all your strength to move, to scream. Maybe you felt their small hands on you, felt them lift you up, press you through the wall as you tried with everything you had to get away. And then, finally, it ends. You're back in your bed. The beings are gone. I am lucky enough to never have experienced, knock on wood, sleep paralysis, a disorder that thrusts people into a nightmarish liminal place between waking life and the dream world. For reasons currently unknown, possibly something to do with a combination of neurotransmitters, some bodies are prone to malfunction in just this way, with the body immobilized in a deep dream-heavy REM sleep and the brain pulled halfway out of that sleep. Symptoms associated with sleep paralysis include an inability to move despite feeling awake, a difficulty breathing, a weight on the chest, and the sensing of or full-blown interaction with strange non-human presences and the feeling of passing through walls or being lifted into the air. People also report buzzing and humming sounds, whispers and growls, vibrations, and sometimes even pain. Episodes can last anywhere from a few seconds to a few minutes, with the experience seeming to last far longer than that. A significant number of abductees, including Whitley Schrieber, were in bed or somewhere else they could easily have fallen asleep when they saw their visions, like in the middle of the night, sleepy in their car. And this phenomenon is clearly one that has long affected our human reality and cultures. Some sleep scientists estimate that between 25 and 50% of people will have at least one instance of sleep paralysis in their lifetime, so look out. 
but about 5% of people will have reoccurring sleep paralysis episodes. While, as Carl Sagan notes, 5-10% to of people are also far more prone to suggestion than others, able to actually be hypnotized in that way where they can be made to do all kinds of ridiculous things. At the same time, 5-10% to of Americans have reported seeing ghosts. And according to that extremely unscientific Roper poll put out by Bud Hopkins and John Mack, the one that would be the singular reason that the X-Files ever got made, estimated alien abductions at a conservative 2%. The similarities of these numbers could be compelling, perhaps. From scientists to mythologists, many academics in various fields believe that sleep paralysis can account for the various stories of humanoid beings who come in the night. Ones that are extremely similar across time and geography, just with their own particular flair. Scandinavian folklore tells of a creature called the night hag that sits on a person's chest and gives them nightmares. In fact, for a long time, sleep paralysis has also been known as old hag syndrome. The hag is astride this night for to ride, the devil and she together. In St. Lucia, the souls of the dead and unborn climb onto people's chests. In Thailand, someone can wake up and be ghost-covered. In Ethiopia, ghosts may try to smother you to death in your sleep. In the Middle East, a similar demon is known as a jinn. Back in the Middle Ages, Europe's succubus and incubus were demons who seduced or outright assaulted their sleeping victims, sometimes taking their sperm and eggs. Fallen angels, too, fell down from heaven to copulate with humans, sometimes even spilling divine secrets during the hybrid pillow talk. In the demon-haunted world, science as a candle in the dark, Carl Sagan offers up another example of a Cornish teenager living in 1645 who had collapsed to the floor completely disoriented. It wasn't until much later that she would give narrative form to the incident, saying that she had been visited and then attacked by six little men who took her up into a castle in the sky and seduced her before dropping her back off in her own bed. At the time, people thought they were fairies, demonic tricksters that were known to kidnap and copulate with humans. They were also known to have the ability to paralyze human beings with just their touch. Sound familiar? The most famous document on witchcraft, written in 1486 and called the Malleus Maleficarum, the author writes that, quote, Devils busy themselves with the process of normal copulation. <laughs> Devils busy themselves with the process of normal copulation and conception by obtaining human semen and themselves transferring it. Demons can transfer the semen which they have collected and inject it into the bodies of others. 
Interestingly, during REM sleep, and thus during sleep paralysis, sexual arousal is common as blood flow increases to the genitals, and this experience can feel as intense as waking arousal, but not necessarily pleasurable when connected to an otherwise terrifying waking nightmare. Experienced instead is yet another part of this trauma. For all human beings, we see a dark presence in the night, but it's our culture that fills in the shadow. So, in a modern, secular American culture that puts faith into science and self-transformation, that lacks a common religious myth and structure, who do these night hags, these demons, these fairies become? We're coming to the part of our show called Speculative Sociology, and keep in mind that these are only some of the many interpretations of the abduction phenomenon, the ones that I've chosen to explore. We've talked on our show a little bit, especially in our episode called Talking to the Dead, about how technological advances always come with their panics and their fantastical beliefs. After all, they're still miraculous to the general population, even if some expert just calls it science. In the era of instant, distanced communication, the telegraph and the telephone inspired stories of spirits and disembodied voices coming from beyond the grave as part of the spiritualism movement. Seances served as entertainment, but also a way to communicate to a greater intelligence that might just be able to enlighten us about the other side, the paranormal, the supernatural. And they report to us that the attacking planes number between 50 and 100, that the air raid is still on, and that the anti-aircraft fire can be heard in a steady drone as the attacking planes come in. We received a bulletin just a little while ago which reported that there have been some of these what Manila Corps, rather Honolulu, calls unidentified planes shot down. And this latest report... World War II would break out just one year after little Bud Hopkins was terrified by Orson Welles' famous War of the Worlds broadcast, that fictional radio show that inadvertently convinced some Americans that a hostile extraterrestrial invasion was imminent, complete with poison gas. The fear of and the obsession with this new phenomenon called an unidentified flying object would reach a fever pitch during the 1940s as radios crackled out horrific stories of real invasions, bombs dropping on real cities, and eventually the news of mass murders in gas chambers. A fascist American invasion suddenly seemed possible, possibly imminent. No wonder we started seeing things in the sky. After the war ended, the first rockets would be launched into space, breaking a previously permanent barrier between us and that great, black, shimmering, firmament, giving ourselves for the first time the perspective of the divine, of the gods. 
The 1950s held these dual views of science and technology. The giddy, manic, dopely, Disney-fied, optimistic, futuristic gadgets of a modern nuclear family. And the absolute dooms-fucking-day atomic weapons that could go off at any minute and liquefy the population. At the same time, the Christian God was becoming less and less popular in America, and we began instead to revere and fear science with all its miracles made real. And it was true that science now, not God, seemed to hold our fates in its unenchanted hands. This was true on the largest scale and the most intimate. No longer was there a neighborhood doctor carrying around a cute little medical bag. Out of necessity, experiences with physicians became far more perfunctory and far less personal. And yet, people knew these strangers were the only ones who decided whether they would suffer or thrive, whether they would live or die. We had to, and we have to, put our faith in them. When you reach your room, you will get undressed, put on a hospital gown, and roll into bed. Immediately, a lot of people will become very much interested in you and your baby. As the 1960s carried on this spirit of progress, the scientific community began to make monumental discoveries around human fertility, birth control, ultrasounds, in vitro fertilization, and soon after, genetic engineering. In the book, They Know Us Better Than We Know Ourselves, The History and Politics of Alien Abduction, author Bridget Brown noticed the strong presence of anxieties around fertility and medicine, quote, Abduction narratives began during the 1960s to give shape to anxieties around the increasing power of a growing technical professional class to control all spheres of human activity, no matter how intimate. And thus, she sees the pop culture alien image and personality that we know today as representing a being that is part doctor, part bureaucrat, and part fetus, which is so weird, I love it. Human potential may be our largest untapped natural resource. For many, the human potential movement is the most significant social invention of the century and the hope of the future. The 1970s would change the American landscape dramatically, politically, socially, spiritually, right down to the way that we saw our very souls. The New Age religion that promised to marry science and spirituality had been forming in California and would go on to influence the ever-widening field of psychology. The human potential movement would see the self as the new frontier, and in our particular American individualism, we began writing our own personal myths, using our personal histories as fables, and most of all, as explanations for why things are the way they are. Suddenly, and really for the first time in colonized American history, we had these things called 
feelings to deal with. We had this new thing called trauma. Trauma and its diagnosis, post-traumatic stress disorder, were first described to World War II shell-shocked veterans, and then, in the 1970s, to the sexual assault and domestic violence sufferers that second-wave feminism and the victims' rights movement sought to address. Slowly, it was expanded further to include many other events that cause extreme distress, as well as the anxiety, depression, panic, and illness that many different kinds of memories can elicit. Since alien abduction was mainly of interest to the New Age psychological fringe of the time, trauma was the logical framework that was in their easy reach. Whitley Strieber, who recalled suffering several sexual assaults by one of his alien captors, wrote in communion of abductee experience, quote, Scoffing at them is as ugly as laughing at rape victims. We do not know what is happening to these people, but whatever it is, it causes them to react as if they've suffered a great personal trauma. And society turns away, led by vociferous professional debunkers whose secret fears apparently close their minds. Here's Whitley himself. I became terribly nervous, upset, irritable, afraid of my own shadow, uh, unable to sleep deeply enough to really be healthy, uh, distraught. I reacted like someone who had been attacked, raped, uh, assaulted. Many of the worst things that happen to us do have stories we remember, stories we often remember too much, as the brain treats traumatic memories not by repressing them, but by keeping them more vivid, more intense, in order to keep you safe from a threat. Biologically speaking, our still primitive human brain goes, okay, next time this very bad threat occurs, next time this predator attacks, you'll remember the past experience more accurately so you might know how to avoid the same event in the future. We remember that story well, and when something triggers the memories of it, we know where the emotions are coming from. But sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, there is no story, no structure, no way to make easy sense of something as abstract and illogical as the human experience, with its arbitrary, sudden aches, its gnawing anxieties, its somatic illnesses. Because we are still, at the bottom of everything, random animals, hunter-gatherers ripped from our original context, reacting to stimuli in a modern world that makes no sense to our inherent biology. And with our individual, vastly different brain chemistries and vastly different childhood conditionings, it becomes obvious that we're going to feel a lot of things we don't understand. And, like the great cosmos beyond, things we will never understand. More after this. 
Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. And now, back to the show. Maybe you're someone who's good at honoring their own pain. But maybe you're also someone who, despite your personal story, believes that nothing bad enough has happened that should make you feel this way. It's like, yeah, okay, nothing except this bare minimum we each experience together, the most extreme possible thing, being human in an unknowable universe, a human who feels love and the accompanying loss, who every day is burdened with small griefs and grating nervousness, and the American hurdles that grind us each down, and most of all, who is burdened constantly with all this never-ending complication and confusion. But now, there was yet another convenient American story that went like this. If you can heal your past trauma, you can be happy and successful. I am entitled to miracles. I am entitled to miracles. It has, of course, been folded into the same very lucrative self-help movement that's offered over the years all kinds of quick fixes and magical mind cures. But in addition to our most extreme examples of pain, our Oprah moments of satanic ritual abuse and assaulted abductees, our struggles come from a variety of less sensational sources too. From grinding jobs like Barney and Betty Hill had, driving 120 miles round trip to work all night at a post office, or to work devastating child welfare cases from the state, together in an interracial marriage in the midst of a battle for civil rights. Yes, this tapestry of stressors, some unsolvable, would be much more easily addressed had they all come from one source. Some memory your brain has repressed, an answer that was always there, a story that would make sense of your pain, one that you could recall and then heal to fix the suffering once and for all. In They Know Us Better Than We Know Ourselves, Bridget Brown looks at this branch of psychology politically, too. Quote, It perversely glamorizes extraordinary types of suffering while directing us to look away from those more common problems that produce human misery and suggests, finally, the futility of seeking to combat such misery on a social or collective level. It's your personal trauma that holds you back. And in this way, don't we still always find a way to blame the victim? If Barney and Betty Hill were to name their chronic yet unfantastical issues, 
would it really have been enough to account for all this new anxiety, this depression, these physical ailments? Having so many feelings in 1961, well, it just was not done. A kidnapping by sinister monsters, however, that was a pretty good justification for the feelings of terror, weakness, powerlessness, and exhaustion. If our culture tells us that our worldly pains are not enough to account for how we feel, might our souls be compelled to supernaturalize our trauma? By the 1970s, liberal changes had placed a new emphasis on the emotional realm previously inhabited by people like Freud's hysteria patients. It became a little more normalized to feel emotions without being pathologized away into a resting room. But outside of the mushy-gushy new age, most typical Americans weren't prescribing to this emotional revolution. The message continued to be that if you had this kind of psychic pain, it had to mean that something horrible had happened to you, or else you were just acting like another garden variety bitch baby. Bud Hopkins held weekly support groups for abductees to share their experiences and find community among people who understand. A typical meeting would see around 20 people sitting in a circle from all walks of life, attorneys, policemen, teachers, airline pilots, and psychiatrists too, bearing their busted heads and hearts to strangers who have also had these unexplainable feelings of anxiety, depression, insomnia, and illness, who needed to give shape to this immense pain that at first they couldn't seem to pinpoint a direct source for. These meetings were supposed to be places where experiencers could share their traumatic paranormal memories without fear of being judged, of being disbelieved, of being ridiculed, and potentially exiled from their friends and family and their work. Which is great, of course. I happen to be a support groupie myself. But there's no way these little communities didn't encourage further fantasies that may have led to that very exile they were originally afraid of. Support group or not, the majority of experiencers do remember their abductions while under hypnotherapy. While this well-meaning therapy has sought to heal trauma, instead it has and still can actually cause trauma, as false memories elicit similar levels of emotion as remembering a trauma that certainly really happened. As evidenced by the satanic panic, in which false accusations of abuse led to wrongful convictions, I guess we can say with aliens, with satanic ritual abuse in space, at least, no one's going to prison. In another fantastic book called The Unidentified by Colin Dickey, he writes, quote, The secret behind so many of the unidentified creatures, so many cults and adherents of fringe and stigmatized beliefs, is a desire to be taken seriously, one way or another. 
So many alien experiencers have found an incredible source of solace, sharing their stories with people who do not think they are batshit crazy. So, since I am not the king of America, yet, instead of a value judgment here, I guess I'll ask yet another question. If we could recognize that the vast majority of us suffer together under the systems and conditions of this America on this planet Earth, that we all experience the absolute absurd difficulties of being human, would our stories of pain have to grow to such sensational proportions for our culture to validate them? And for you to believe that you're not somehow morally or spiritually or socially or even politically deficient if you feel busted as hell and cannot pinpoint why. In any way, sleep paralysis occurs more often in people who are chronically stressed and sleep deprived, no matter the reason why. No matter who we are, all our monsters come to us when we are weak. They seem to be very, very curious about how human beings relate to one another. They seem to be at the most basic human level. They're most interested, it would seem, in all the things that make us particularly human. They're not interested in our water supply or our atomic weapons or anything like that. They're here to, let's say, uh, absorb what they can of the things that are the most wonderful things about human beings. The fact that we love one another, we have emotions, we have jokes, we make love, we have sex, we care for our babies, uh, we care for our planet. They seem to be in awe of those human resources. Though Bud's aliens were almost robotic figures that were focused on human experimentation and hybrid breeding, their main interest, the main thing they wanted to find out about this strange race of beings as foreign to them as they are to us, was what it was like to feel. Although John Mack saw it differently, saw the alien beings as ultimately loving and even savioristic, he still agreed with Bud on this point. Quote, The alien beings seem interested in human woundedness. When you think about it, these aliens are not unlike therapists themselves, who, heroically, I might add, witness our hardest feelings without judging us, without making a moral issue out of what often amounts to our biological and conditioned responses to stimuli. In general, our skeptics have made sense of the majority of abduction stories like this. A victim experiences an episode of sleep paralysis and can remember parts of that waking dream, especially the humanoid figures. Often, there's an element of blankness, of missing time, and then later, these unexplained symptoms of anxiety, apprehension, dread, the feeling that something bad has happened, but you can't quite make sense of it. If you're predisposed to a belief in the paranormal, you might find yourself at an alien convention or digging through alien books at the library. However you do it, you come across a description of alien abduction and its accompanying symptoms. 
Oftentimes, those books and conferences feature hypnotherapists who then encourage you accidentally into constructing detailed false abduction memories. And then, bada bing, bada boom, you are a believer, an experiencer, a chosen one. But chosen for what? Well, I guess that depends on who you ask. At the heart of so much of this story of an alien race, whether malevolent or benevolent, is this other biological human need we have for myth, for a spiritual structure. Carl Sagan put it like this, quote, Dressed in scientific jargon, their immense powers explained by superficially scientific terminology, the gods and demons of old come down from heaven to haunt us, to offer prophetic visions, and to tantalize us with visions of a more hopeful future, a space-age mystery, religious aborning. With his eyes closed in his own session of hypnotherapy, John Mack once had an epiphany. He had been Harvard's head of psychiatry, a man raised by academic atheists, a man who would later rebel. Quote, I see why I'm so interested in this abduction story because it's the opposite of my belief system, because I was raised to believe in a universe with nothing in it. No God, no intelligence, no life, no nothing. Beyond just the desire for our emotions to be witnessed without judgment, I think we still ache for something more than that. We want to be loved unconditionally, to feel safe, and cared for in our little place in the universe. John Mack heard most often from his patients that aliens were trying to save humanity from its own destruction, that they were looking at us from on high. They were beings who wanted to help us save the planet and save our souls. I've had people who describe actual evolving deep profound loving bonds between the humans and these beings that last over time that some experiences describe as many times more powerful than anything they can feel on earth sense that people have that they're somehow being open to source returning to their their what they call home with a capital h the the spiritual origin of of all that is and they feel that they are brought closer to that, and many experiencers feel that that's a fundamental part of this experience, that they're brought closer to the depth of being, the, uh, the, the Godhead, whatever you want to call it. There's different uh, language uh, for this. Though he may have disagreed with his friend John Mack about the state of alien life, Carl Sagan, too, had been searching for contact sending out radio signals into outer space, hoping for a less sensational answer, but proof, nonetheless, that we are not alone. For this reason, he was soft on his fellow seekers. Quote, 
In the way that skepticism is sometimes applied to issues of public concern, there is a tendency to belittle, to condescend, to ignore the fact that supporters of superstition and pseudoscience are human beings with real feelings who, like the skeptics, are trying to figure out how the world works and what our role might be. Their motives are, in many cases, consonant with science. If their culture has not given them all the tools they need to pursue this great quest, let us temper our criticism with kindness. None of us comes fully equipped. We can't know how future generations will look back at our stories, at our science, in 20, 100, 200, 1,000 years. What space-age podcast will one day analyze our current bullshit, batshit beliefs and behaviors, including my own? And so, let's close out this series with some human humility and, most vitally, a reverence for the great mystery. Because, after all, we still don't know what causes sleep paralysis. We can't know if these shadow beings could mean something more. The only truth we can be sure of on this pale blue dot, as Carl calls it, is that we just don't know. Here is Whitley Strieber's communion to play us what might be hidden in the dark part of my mind? I thought then that I was dancing on the thinnest edge of my soul. Below me were vast spaces, totally unknown. Not psychology, not religion, not biology could penetrate that depth. None of them had any real idea of what lives within. They only knew what little it had chosen to reveal of itself. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, I'll be talking to one of my favorite people, Jim Perry of the paranormal podcast Euphemet, where I actually used to work before this. Jim and I will share the experiences we've had with experiencers and the experiences we've had ourselves. We'd like to thank all of our new patrons for joining up, and of course, all of our veteran patrons as well, one is silver and the other's gold. After we finish up with our series on alien abductions, you can hear our new episode of Hysteria Home Companion, only on Patreon, that covers celebrity alien abductions from Demi Lovato to Anne Heche. Our two previous episodes have focused on the personal drama of the extreme haunted house McKamey Manor and the polyamorous cult of Ayn Rand. So just head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria and join up today. 
You can follow us on social media at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter. If you can, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want some sick merch, head to AmericanHysteria.com. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound design by Clear Como Studios, co-researched and co-written by Riley Smith, and co-edited and co-produced by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening. And may all the aliens that abduct you treat you with the respect you deserve. And if they don't, you come and talk to me, and I will fucking do nothing for you because I am so scared of aliens. I hope you have a great day. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com